Hello, hello mga kometa! Kamusta kayo dyan? Ito na! Gilas Pilipinas! Puso! Puso! Yan, para sa bayan! Shortly, the Philippines will take on, you know? First, karibal dito sa FIBA World Cup. Many are optimistic that we can get at least a win or two based dun sa mga surveys na ginawa natin over Twitter. So let's see. So hopefully, Gilas Pilipinas will start on a strong footing Para naman may chance tayo to have our best performance yet in recent decades. No, obviously kung malalaman yung back in the day pagdating sa Pilipinas hanggang bronze medal contention na abutan natin, di ba? And that's why one of our very own, right, has been recently inducted into the Basketball FIBA uh, Hall of Fame. So we're hoping to at least make it to the next round. So that means Perhaps two wins ang kailangan natin dito sa preliminary round para naman we get something good. So, best wishes to Gilas, Pilipinas. At sana naman, hindi lang parang puso. Sana may konting diskarte. Sana naman, medyo precision, get the ball rolling. So, let's talk about that shortly. Marami pa tayong pag-usapan. Of course, there's also this element of good governance. At kahapon, uh, we were not able to do a follow-up uh Meta, dahil nga, of course, nakita niyo, we were taping dun sa Jano Gibbs uh, Real Talk episodes natin. So please watch out for the final, yung malinis, maayos na episode to come out on Real Talk. Please subscribe dun sa Real Talk. Type nilang Real Talk sa Facebook. Lalabas yung page namin. Please subscribe to that. Subscribe also to our YouTube, our different channels. Para makita niyo naman yung maayos, finalist version ng mga interviews na ginagawa natin. Nagihirap po yung mga teams natin, yung mga collaborators natin, yung mga guests natin. Now, uh, obviously, yung hinabol din natin kahapon, yung event ni Mayor Magalong, yung kanilang Good Governance, Mayors for Good Governance Initiative, dyan sa UP Diliman, sa Philippine uh, Film Institute, yung uh, UP Film Institute yung event. We'll talk about that very shortly. But let me habol first, right? Let me habol first. Dito sa big breaking news, eto na. The BRICS has expanded, so hindi na lang siyang BRICS, medyo... Let's just hope hindi siya maging broke. No, <laughs> no ito. So we have new members coming out. Uh, a lot of countries applied for it. I think Vietnam, Indonesia, Turkey, many of other rising powers applied for it. But uh, uh, only a few so far have been admitted. Six have been admitted so far. And majority of them are from Muslim majority countries. And majority of them are from Middle East and North Africa region. Which tells you a lot about the growing orientation of the BRICS as an increasingly energy power oriented block no of course you got china and india there are the world's leading importers of energy goods but you have russia there and you have brazil there but more importantly now you have also saudi arabia united arab emirates and iran who are one of the world's biggest producers of oil. And in the case of Iran and Russia, one of the biggest uh, reserves of natural oil and gas. So, let's how these things are going to move forward. So, let's talk about this. And then, let's go back to the other topics we want to discuss. Gilas, Filipinas, whatnot. Now, let's go to the BRICS first because I think this is, this is a very important issue. There's a lot of hype around it. Lalo na yung mga mahilig sa YouTube University. So, let's talk about that. Let's go into that issue. Let's look at some of the numbers. No? So, as I said, uh, many countries applied, but not many got into it. 
So we were expecting actually Indonesia to be a shoe-in. We were expecting Vietnam and Turkey to also have a very good chance. Now, the one with Turkey, I, I, you know, I had my doubts because Turkey is a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And as you know, Russia right now is in a de facto proxy war with NATO. So I'm not sure about the level of comfort there, even if, if you look at Turkey as an actual foreign policy under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, actually Turkey has been trying to play both sides, you know, trying to keep a good relationship with Russia while maintaining its presence within NATO, at least as the second largest uh, ground forces within NATO in Turkey. So Turkey is a big force within NATO, but it also has very good and big relationship with Russia, especially Erdogan and Putin. But nevertheless, perhaps some felt maybe Russia and China felt eh, having a NATO member was not the right way forward, even though Turkey has a massive economy, more than a trillion dollar economy, and has very big potentials to be one of the rising economies of the world. The other big country that was also being uh, considered, and I think this country actually ticks even more boxes than Turkey, is Indonesia. And Indonesia is not part of the North, uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It doesn't have any treaty alliance with any major power. It's a classic non-aligned country. And if you know it, historically, actually, Indonesia was the founder or one of the co-founders of the non-aligned movements. This was during the so-called Bandung Conference in Bandung, Indonesia, when back then Sukarno, the leader of Indonesia, actually hosted world leaders back then, leaders of so-called third world. Third world doesn't mean nagrepa or, or poor. Third world actually means third way. Neither first world, meaning capitalists, Western countries, nor second world, meaning communist countries. Third world meant third way. So countries as varied as Singapore to Saudi Arabia, rich countries like that could also be considered as third world because they didn't want to be part of any of the major blocks. So that's what we mean when we say third world. Now, obviously, we can have a long discussion about what things went right and what things went wrong with the non-aligned movement. They had their heydays in the 1960s and 70s when they felt they could create a new international economic order. In fact, there's a fantastic book that I suggest you guys to read. Um, this is a fantastic book. I think you guys should have to read. So, A Poor, Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South. This is a fantastic book, I guy, uh, guys, I suggest you read. Uh, it's by uh, the Indian political scientist and expert Vijay Prashad. So it's a fantastic book. It gives you a history of earlier attempts by non-Western countries to create an alternative international order, right? So this goes back to the Bandung Conference. This goes back to Afro-Asiatic Conference. And in fact, the Philippines in the 50s and 60s, even though we were a U.S. treaty ally, even though we were seen as part of the Western alliance, we tried to actually reach out uh, to uh, the so-called non-aligned movement. And no less than Romulo, Carlos P. Romulo, had very interesting discussions with Jawaharlal Nehru of India uh, about this issue. So Jawaharlal Nehru of India, Sukarno of Indonesia, Gamal Abdul Nasser of Egypt, Tito of Yugoslavia, Nyerere of Tanzania. So these were seen as the big leaders of the post-colonial so-called third world. But that didn't go very far, and I really suggest you guys read this fantastic book by Vijay Prashad, The Poorer Nations, which looks at the highs and lows of these efforts to create an alternative international order, to create an alternative block to this bipolar U.S. versus communist world kind of situation we had in the 20th century. Now, let's go to the BRICS, because if you look at BRICS, 
natatawa ako dun sa mga, you know, like there's some trolls or yung mga feeling experts were telling me about basic facts about bricks. Like, hello, before you guys even know that Goldman Sachs existed, I already knew, or bricks existed, I already knew about the study by Jim O'Neill. So, so if you look at it, the, uh, and you, you can just, you know, go to our academic writings and otherwise, 10 years ago pa lang I've been writing about the bricks. So bricks actually starts from an economic report uh, by Jim O'Neill. Who looks at who looked at the potential of uh, a couple of countries, gigantic, big, big, big countries? No. Uh, so in October 2003, there was this very, very important report. Um, I'll show it to you, which looked at the trend lines in terms of a few gigantic non-Western countries really making waves. So back then, of course, Russia was doing very well economically because of the boom in the prices of oil, not because Putin was some genius, etc. No, because the prices of oil were booming. Uh, Russia was taking advantage of his also booming natural gas exports to Europe as Europe was trying to normalize relations with Russia. And then, of course, you had China, member of the World Trade Organization, and China now becoming huge, huge force uh, in, uh, in the global economy thanks to booming exports to the West, thanks to booming investments from Taiwan, from Japan, from the West. So China was taking very much advantage of globaliz uh, globalization no? uh, as it joined the World Trade Organization and as, as it attracted more and more Western imports. At the same time, Brazil, then under the first iteration of Lula da Silva, was also a booming country, especially booming in terms of agricultural exports. It becomes an agro-business superpower. And, of course, to complete it, we had India, which in early 2000s, move into a whole new economic model by becoming a business global business outsourcing superpower right the bpo industry of course we also have that in the philippines the it sector the boom of the banglores of this world the boom in mumbai so this was a time of huge optimism right and in fact i suggest you guys read this fantastic book by another very great indian uh, writer and expert breakout nations no it's a fantastic book. I, re I suggest you guys read it. It's by Rushir Sharma, who back, uh, you know, a few years, until a few years ago, was in charge of close to what? A trillion dollar in investment portfolio, Morgan Stanley, uh, in the developing world. So this is a guy who was not only an economist and a journalist, he was in charge of big investments across the developing world. So you knew what he was talking about. <coughs> Sorry about that. Here, so this is the fantastic book. I guess you guys, I suggest you guys. So he looks at, for instance, how in the late 1990s and especially in early 2000s, there's the massive economic boom in 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 resource-rich countries like Brazil and, and Russia, but also economic boom in gigantic countries like India and China, which very much join the globalization game. IT business process outsourcing for India, export inter, in, in uh, export-oriented industrialization in the case of China. Now. It didn't take long for that Goldman Sachs report on the economic potential of these countries to turn into a real, or at least, an emerging geopolitical bloc. So just barely half a decade after, you had the first BRICS summit being organized. And in fact, Vladimir Putin was one of the uh, harbingers uh, of this. So, so, in, so one of the first meetings was in St. Petersburg, if I'm not mistaken, the first BRICS meeting. And then the rest is essentially history as these four gigantic countries plus South Africa. So BRICS. Now, why South Africa there? Because if you look at South African economic and GDP size, it's not 
anywhere close to the other four, big four. So all the other big four are in the trillion dollar GDP territory. But South Africa is a semi-industrialized country, quite a sophisticated economy. And uh, importantly with South Africa, it gives representation to Africa because up until recently, when Nigeria's economic revisions made it the biggest economy in Africa, African continent, South Africa was the biggest economy in Africa. So you wanted to create some sort of uh, this Afro, Asia, Latin America, Global South solidarity. So it, it made sense to bring in Africa. And interestingly, it is under South Africa's chairmanship this year of the BRICS that we finally see based on reports four or five years of negotiations that there's a massive expansion and really solid recognition of the need for the BRICS to go big, right? Go big or go broke. Parang yun yung understanding na iba Now, nevertheless, the picture is complicated. The picture is complicated because within the BRICS, things have been changing very fast. In fact, you can talk about essentially two poles within the BRICS. One pole is led by China, because Russia is now increasingly an addendum to China, let's be honest about it. Putin is relying a lot on China to prop up its economy, huge exports to China, and increasingly also to India. Uh, and most of the cars and consumer products, industrial products right now in Russia are coming from China, right? Because yeah, all the sanctions, all the problems with the West. That's why the Russian economy is afloat because it's dealing, it's re redirecting its economy towards China, but that means huge imports from China. That means huge reliance on China and increasingly also in India. So Russia is becoming weaker and weaker in the ranks of alternative powers. It still has a lot of nuclear weapons that gives it a kind of a same global affairs. But beyond that, it has an economy which is not dynamic. It has an economy that is not really upgrading, but an economy that is increasingly dependent on that of China and India. So as Russia goes down, it's really two countries who are coming up. Brazil is so-so, so after four or five years of economic stagnation, massive corruption scandals that led to the rise of Bolsonaro, now Brazil is kind of coming back thanks to the boom in the price of commodity products. So Brazil is in better position right now uh, in these days. But Brazil is nowhere close to the potential that everyone was expecting it to meet back in late 2000s when everyone felt Brazil could be in top four or five economies by this point in time. Now Brazil is big enough, but not at the same level of India, now the biggest country in the world by population, and China, second largest economy in nominal terms, largest economy in the world in purchasing power parity. So it really have two poles right now within BRICS. One is India, and I think Brazil is very much more close to India because both are democratic nations, which are also non-aligned, they don't wanna align with the West. And then the other one is really China, right? Uh, with Russia more increasing as an addendum, and South Africa just being nice, nice host there. <laughs> no offense to them, right? Although I would say South Africa is kind of also more the Brazil-India type. And the first big disagreement between the two sides was really on the issue of expansion. What kind of countries are we allowing to come in? Because if the expansion is going to be is going to go in the direction of more and more anti-Western or China-dependent countries. Then India said, no, no thanks about that. Because that will mean that BRICS will become more a China-dominated, will be become more of cribs rather than BRICS. Uh, a China-dominated organization rather than a really global South alternative polo power organization. And India's insistence actually has been a reason why Pakistan was not included 
in the expansion. Because as you know, Pakistan is an arch rival of India. But Pakistan is also a very, uh, supposedly, all-weather ally of China. And China wanted Pakistan in to have another dependent ally inside to expand its voice via, via proxies. But of course, Pakistan is, is a huge country, at least by population, not necessarily by economic size. But India blocked that. And that's why you didn't have Pakistan among the number of countries there. India also insisted on the inclusion of United Arab Emirates because they feel that UAE, it's a commercially oriented country that has a very strong strategic relationship with India. There are not many Indians who work in UAE. UAE has very strong energy and trade relations with India via the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean going to uh, the western portions of India, the Gujarat, the Gujarat, the whole trade that's very ancient monsoon trade. So ties with UAE is very strong. And UAE is known as a country which also wants to play kind of like Singapore, right? And an entrepot that's going to play different sides. They, they host American troops, but they want to have a good relationship with Iran. They have great relationship with Russia. They have very robust relationship with China, but also a very, very close relationship with India. So India got its way in terms of making sure Pakistan doesn't come in, at least so far. And India also got its way in making sure UAE will be there because China was insisting on the China and Russia were insisting on the inclusion of Iran, which doesn't have the best of relationship, of course, with the West. But India didn't have much problem also with Iran. This is a whole episode we can have because Iran is also important to India because of the so-called Chabahar uh, port being built in the Persian Gulf going to the Gulf of Oman, no? So India is also have a very good relationship with Iran. Uh, so that's why Iran came in. But China wanted Iran and Saudi Arabia, both of them, to come in because China sees the inclusion of these major rivals and powers from the Middle East as important in terms of giving voice and possess to BRICS, but more importantly, to also indirectly affirm its successful brokering of peace or detente so far between the two major poles of power in the Middle East. So as you know, earlier this year, China successfully brokered these sets of, uh, sets of agreements between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So bringing both Saudi Arabia and Iran into the BRICS kind of also reaffirms China's growing role as a broker in the region and as a kind of global power, which is not only power in East Asia, it's now also power in West Asia and Middle East, which historically has been dominated by Western powers, at least since the dawn of modernity and more recently, by US. So the inclusion of Iran and Saudi is also very, very important because Iran and Saudi Arabia are among the top producers of oil in the world, along with Russia and United Arab Emirates. And Iran and Russia are also the top producers or top at least hosts of natural gas in the world. So that gives you a sense that yes, you have Ethiopia there and you have Argentina and you have Egypt, the three other countries that were admitted. But the inclusion of Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Emirates was extremely important because it helps those three countries to have more and more interaction with each other to deal with the rivalries. It also allows China to buttress Jung, uh, the taunt that they negotiated between these rival powers. But more and more and more importantly, you have three massive energy powers of UAE, the Emiratis, the Al Saudis, and also now the Iranians or Persians also coming to the fore. So BRICS now is a grouping of energy superpowers. And this is this is very, very important. So that is at least the first iteration of a massively expanded BRICS. In fact, there was this is the th second time that there's an expansion of BRICS. That would be like the first time they brought in South Africa. But this is the really first major expansion of BRICS because many countries that are coming in, they don't even meet the, the acronym Ethiopia E, 
Argentina, A. There's no A. At least Iran is letter I, so that I becomes squared. Uh, potentially, if Indonesia comes in, it becomes I cubed. S, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, so it doesn't really change it. And then United Arab Emirates, I don't know how you want to put it. It doesn't meet also the acronym, right? So, so the BRICS acronym is now no longer fitting considering what number of countries coming in. But the diversity of the countries that came in, including, of course, Egypt, also letter E, doesn't fit in, reflects this internal balancing act and reflects this fragile equilibrium between India and China on the future of the BRICS. Now, the next question is, ano naman ang bag ng BRICS na yan? Okay, so symbolically, it's very important, right? Because it's now a collection of many, many big countries outside the West. And in a way, this is important because it also shows that the world is shifting, shifting dramatically since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Because the invasion of Ukraine by Russia showed that the West can come together, in this case against Russia. But at the same time, it also showed that the West cannot coerce the rest of the world to join its fight against Russia in terms of uh, sanctions. So this gives you an idea about the BRICS. So now in terms of GDP, with the inclusion of all these new countries, almost a third of the global GDP will be the BRICS expanded countries. In terms of population, it's much bigger at 46%. So that gives an idea that in terms of per capita income, BRICS is actually below average. And in terms of oil production, 43% of global oil production, that's the members of BRICS. So BRICS is barely a dozen countries, and now they're responsible for 43% of global production. And thanks to China, the BRICS is responsible for a quarter of global exports. So impressive numbers, but yet, it's, it's not yet completely dominant. We're not talking about 60%, 70%. We're talking about 30%, 40% uh, in terms of numbers. But still, see, at barely dozen members, BRICS has some muscles to flex. Uh, let's look at the other data. So in, this, is, this gives you an idea of uh, the billions of dollars in terms of sharing the global GDP. Although if you look at purchasing power parity, especially economies like Egypt and Iran are trillion dollar economies, so that will massively expand their global contribution. Uh, oil and gas, we also showed that, so that gives you an idea about their, uh, I already I think summarized that we don't have to go to details, you can check it on your own. So this is just some of the data that I think are important to just give you an idea how important these countries are globally. So in terms of share of global GDP, oil production, I think it's really the, in the energy area where you can see BRICS has some things to pull. Now, having said that, still, still, when it comes to BRICS, I think there's still more of hype than than uh, actual impact. Bakit kamo? Let's talk about the weaknesses of, of BRICS. So BRICS so far symbolically is important. It's a collection. But the collection doesn't mean anything unless there's organization. It doesn't mean anything unless there's some institution. So let's go through these things one by one. First of all, the BRICS doesn't even have a kind of a centralized secretariat, even at the level of as association of Southeast Asian nations. So its level of institutionalization is very, very low, very, very weak. So it's nothing close to G7 that has annual finance minister meeting uh, and all sorts of different working groups that make sure your G7 countries of Canada, Italy, Japan, uh, you know, United Kingdom, France, Germany, and US, they really coordinate their responses. In fact, it's not even as institutionalized as G20, 
which already includes some of the members of BRICS, expanded BRICS, such as, for instance, Saudi Arabia. Now, the other thing is that there's a lot of discussion about the dollarization. Now, this is interesting because in theory, the dollarization makes sense in a sense that most of these countries, especially China and Russia, and now also new members like Iran, do not want to be dependent on US dollar for their global trade because of their vulnerability to sanctions and because of their willingness to overcome sanctions. Now, there's a problem, though. <laughs> the single financial institution that has been developed by the BRICS, the New Development Bank in itself, is having a shortage of dollar. Because at the end of the day, dollar is still the dominant global currency, and dollar is a convertible currency. And the reality is that in moments of crisis, actually, the value of dollar tends to go up because it's really the global reserve currency. What are your alternatives? Euro? EU is doing economically worse than US. Japan? Japan is nowhere close in terms of economic power to United States or even EU. So neither yen, Japanese yen, or euro have proven as formidable as an alternative to the US, and not to mention the three of them put together are, are still a reflection of G7 Western power. Speaking of renminbi of China, it's still not a globally convertible currency and it's pe pegged to that of US dollar for it to be devalued and so that the Chinese exports are more competitive. We had a separate vlog on the dollarization that I suggest you guys to check it. I'll put it in the links so that you can check it again. We had a long conversation on that. But suffice to say that the BRICS only has one major institution. I think this is based in Shanghai, the New Development Bank. And so far, not only it has not created any major projects or initiative of worth beyond, you know, Kutspa, but in its, itself is now in trouble because it needs dollar to prop itself up. And Russia is heavily sanctioned. India is playing its own game, right? Brazil's economy is just recovering. And speaking of China, the Chinese economy is also not doing very well nowadays, right? So if you look at the numbers, the China's economy seems to be peaking, right? Not pecking, but peaking. Uh, and China is facing really serious structural problems. It's very likely that Chinese economic growth will be at the level of 4 to 5% realistically for the foreseeable future, which is good compared to what you have in rich countries. But remember, China is not a rich country yet. Their per capita is around $12,000, which is barely a fourth of that in countries like the United States. So China is still a middle-income country and they could be experiencing a middle-income trap. So everyone talks about the Japan scenario of 1980s, but Japan was already a rich country of around $30,000, $40,000 per capita in today's dollars when it experienced a slowdown. China is experiencing slowdown, massive slowdown, while it's still a relatively poor country. Uh, the per capita of around just $12,000 compared to $60,000, $80,000 in much of the West. So what you see is that the numbers are not looking good for China in terms of economic productivity, in terms of return, corporate return. So that's why the private sector in China is actually very, very conservative nowadays. It's not hiring a lot of people. And that also explains the massive explosion in unemployment among the youth, especially college graduated youth. You also see that factor productivity is lower. So that means China has to spend more and more dollars to produce more and more dollars. So they have diminishing returns in terms of their investments. And the whole Chinese model of so this is the growth rate of China. By the way, these are the official numbers. The real numbers could be significantly lower. So China went from a country that was growing 10%, 12% to a country that was growing 7 8%. Now we're looking at a country that is going to grow potentially below 5% in the foreseeable future. Again, these are official numbers. And there are times when China 
just doesn't publish numbers or there are questions about how it, how reliable those numbers are. So I think 3 to 5% is really going to be the new normal for China because the one sector that really contributed to massive growth in China was the real estate and infrastructure sector, and that one is flat out right now. It's not really doing well. The numbers are absolutely clear about that because China's overdone it. They have absolutely overdone it. So this is the China property sector contribution to GDP growth rate. It's now negative. It has been negative since, uh, you know, 2021 or so, right? And it's expected to be negative until 2033, way into the next decade. So the, one of the growth engines of China is, is really spottering and going off the rails. And China's private sector is also not investing much. And China's consumers are also not spending much. So where is China going to get its growth? It looks like the strategy so far is to rely on Chinese high-tech manufacturing sector, electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, 5G network. But there's, there's going to be a lot of problems also on that front because China will be facing U.S. sanctions. China will be facing the, the coupling, the risking. China is going to face more and more competition from other countries who are coming in. India, Vietnam, for instance, not to mention also Indonesia. So China cannot just rely on high-tech manufacturing sector, which, by the way, is still not there yet to compensate for depressed consumption, for depressed private sector investments, for diminishing returns and overcapacity uh, pagdating sa kanyang infrastructure sector. And don't worry, I'm going to end on this because I know we can go on and on and on. I'm just giving an idea about BRICS is becoming more and more China-dominated. India is still trying its best. But China itself doesn't look like it has the ability to sustain the massive growth it has had for quite some time. So what I'm saying is that I'm not saying BRICS is useless. BRICS is not business class, a la G7, but it could be premium economy, right, at best. But it has to yet build solid institutions that are capable of really challenging U.S. dollar. And China, which is the most powerful economy within the BRICS itself, is, not, is now grappling with some serious problems of economic slowdown. I'm just trying to pull out some of this. So this gives you an idea. So China has been massively spending way above global average. Right? This is the investment share of GDP to generate growth over the past two or three decades. That explains why they were able to grow even after financial crisis, global financial. But there's just so many new airports, new railways, new roads that you can keep on building, building. And that's going to create a lot of overcapacity. And not to mention, that's going to create a lot of utang. So people t keep on talking about Hi, China, Belt and Road Initiative, utang ties to China. What people forget is that China has a lot of utang itself. Of course, a lot of it is domestic, but still, they have a lot of buildup of massive debt internally, right? So you can see a massive explosion. So debt to non-financial sector as a share of GDP in, U in China is worse than United States and Europe right now. That's how serious the debt situation in China is, right? Yes, it's not foreign debt, but still it's an overcapacity. Now at 300%, no emerging market has reached this level and sustained high economic growth rate. This is a complete anomaly, and one of the growth drivers, which is the private, se uh, which is the property sector, real estate, infrastructure, is also essentially bust. And so, where are they going to get the massive growth uh, growth sectors in order to keep on seven, eight percent growth rate? Where are they going to keep on? Where they're going to get the growth to keep on bringing money for built and road initiative? Kaya mahalagyan sa Pilipinas because ngayon ang tanong, it makes sense. Bakit si Tate digo walang siyang nakuha sa China? Bakit debt trap? Hindi nangyari, pledge trap nangyari. Because mong 
not only hindi tayo priority, mukhang wala tayong masyadong perang China spare na i-dump sa Pilipinas or ibang bansa to buy our loyalty. So, this is the serious situation we're facing. So, what I'm saying is, I'm not here to say BRICS is useless. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially for countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, which are trying to build rapport with each other. I think it helps countries like Russia and Iran in terms of saying we're not isolated. It has its value. It has its value. And it has its prestige. But over the long run, can it build the strong institutions to challenge U.S. hegemony in dollar, U.S. hegemony in terms of IMF, World Bank, those institutions, or even Japanese influence in terms of Asian Development Bank? I don't know. I'm not seeing any indications. And the long-term indications, mm, I'll just say 50-50 to be best. Okay. I hope you guys appreciate our analysis so far because I really wanted to tell you guys where I stand on this issue because... I'm not a guy who just wants to jump on the hype. I look at the numbers. I look at the long-term trends. And guess what? I've been following this BRICS issue for more than a decade already. No undergraduate, pa lang, I've been obsessed about this studies, Next 11, BRICS, so on and so forth. Because as a man of color, as someone who comes from the global south, as someone who's, who wants sana naman, something different, hindi purong Western hegemony, American hegemony, of course I want a different world whereby we colored skin people, non-white people, non-Western people have more say internationally. But wag naman tayo wishful thinking and wag naman tayo mag-Ricarte style na jump tayo doon sa mga bagong imperialist powers just because hindi sila, non, hindi sila Western, right? So it, it's about nuance, it's about data, it's about proper analysis, and it's about proper scholarship, which unfortunately I'm not seeing a lot of YouTube university, blogger, tatay style geopolitics analysis we're seeing out there. Alright, I hope you appreciate this kind of a primer on the BRICS expansion, which as again, to put it this way, BRICS is not business class yet, a la G7, but it's definitely, it has the potential, at least symbolically, psychologically, to be a premium economy, but it's not there yet. Let's see what they can do, and let's also see what's going to happen with China. And also to add here, India is increasingly looking at doing its own thing, because it feels that BRICS is now increasingly China-dominated, together with Russia and its pals. It feels that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, well, it's in Shanghai, is dominated also by China. So if you look at a lot of these non-Western major blocks, they're mostly China-dominated. So if you're India, what are you going to do? You don't want to also jump into the Western bandwagon. That's why the Indians are very defensive when you ask, ask about Quad. No, 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 we're not here allied with the U.S. We're here because we have shared interests. But let's see what India is going to do. So ASEAN is important to India because ASEAN, at least for India, is seen as kind of a neutral venue which is not controlled by China or dictated by China. Right? So let's see. And I think that's where ASEAN and India have a lot of potential to push forward. Okay, I hope you appreciate this mini lecture. And on that note, I hope we'll have more conversation on this. Now, malapit ng laro ng uh, Gilas Pilipinas. Let's just have a little bit of a, what do you say? Um, bonus episode. In the end, the Dominican Republic ang kalaban natin ngayon, di ba? Mm. So, ito yung kalaban natin. Uh, I don't think Dominican Republic is weak. Although, I think Puerto Rico is stronger from what I understand. Hindi ako expert. Ang dami nagalit sa akin na nag-comment ako, bakit si Fajardo? And nagtanong lang ako, Fajardo question mark. I mean, in fairness to Fajardo, nag-Ronaldo Messi level siya. So, he's keeping it going. I'm great that he's there. I'm just saying, sana naman... Um, manalo naman tayo kahit sa Dominican Republic at saka yung isa pa, di ba? Ivory Coast pa yung next? Okay, I mean a win is the minimum I, I hope for the Philippines para lang medyo respetable but two wins I think is reasonable for us and in fact, I had a, I had a survey on Twitter when I look at this issue and it looks like there's a lot of optimism that at least we can get one win and in fact, a, a large plurality more than 40% 
last time I checked yung, yung um, survey ko on Twitter, felt that we can make it to the second round. So as a Pinoy, super proud if we make it to the next round. And hopefully, we can also talk about BRICS. Baka Philippines can join BRICS. No? Uh, but no, seriously. Let's look at it. So please go on Twitter and, and try to vote whether you think Gilas Filipinas can make it to the next round. Uh, maganda yung laro natin with Lebanon and Senegal. These are the two matches. Yung Montenegro, hmm. Yung Montenegro at saka Team B ng Iran, like, hmm, I'm not very sure. Hindi ako masyadong natuwa dun sa mga uh, matches na yan because I felt medyo nag-underperform tayo. But when it comes dito sa, andyan na yata yung delivery ko. Alright, kaya na tayo. But I'm just hoping for the West. Anyway, ituloy na natin discussion na ito bukas. Ihabol natin kay Mayor Magalong. I think we have to have more serious discussions about good governance. So I'll leave it for a different vlog for now. In the meantime, puntaan muna natin yung Grab Delivery para naman. Alright? Thank you very much, guys. Maraming salamat sa lahat ng mga sumusuporta sa atin. I, I hope you appreciate this mini lectures we do, no? Because I really think we, de- we, uh, we deserve a kind of an informed discussion on serious international issues. We really, really need that. We really, really need that. Alright? Kasi we deserve it. Hindi dapat ito yung mga nasa klase lang, sa graduate school, sa mga top universities. Kasi otherwise, aasa na lang tayo dun sa mga scammy YouTube university types or yung mga, alam mo na, mga pretentious experts dahil lang, ano, alam mo na, di ba? Alam mo na yung mga yan, di ba? Huwag ganun. And, uh, hanggang hype na lang tayo at saka symbolism at yung mga shallow. Now, let's look at the numbers. Let's look at the big picture. Ako, as I said, as a colored man, as a non-white man, as a non-Western man, I want us to do better in the developing world. I want us to have voice. I, I was always inspired by every time I read about the Bandung Conference, etc. So I get emotional about it when I feel tired naman, finally we can have our say. Pero wag naman tayo visual thinking. And let's also watch out. Non-Western could end up China-dominated. And are you okay with that? And that's why India and Brazil and South Africa had some issues with the expansion. At the same time, I'm also happy. To see that Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, these countries are coming together and having more conversation and joining together and hopefully to see more and more of leaders of Iran, Saudi Arabia and Emirates meeting each other in BRICS and other meetings because ayon natin ang gulo sa Middle East. And we want these countries to do well because maraming kababayan, maraming tayong kababayan sa mga bansa na yan. So my best wishes is at least BRICS creates more more interaction among key powers in the Middle East, rival powers in the Middle East. All right? On that note, thank you very much. Maraming salamat kay Ma'am Jocelyn Limberio, kay Liza Salanga-Sart for joining us, for Noemi Tablate, kay Ma'am Belen, uh, Eden Olona, sorry, gutom na ako. Uh, kay Michael Uy, thank you so much also, sir. Uh, kay Angeline Simons, yan. I hope you appreciate this mini lectures. Ayan, and in five minutes, magsimula na yung match natin with Dominican Republic. Mi amigos, let's do this. Para sa bayan. Alright, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Dito rin sa mga kasama natin sa YouTube. Thank you very much. Lahat mga nagbamahal sa atin. Ayan, marami na mga comments dyan. Tuloy nang natin ng laban. Alright, talk to you. So, bukas hopefully catch up tayo dito sa basketball issue. Hopefully good result. Sana naman to put us in a good position for the next match. And tuloy natin discussion about Mayor Magalong, good governance. Marami tayong pag-usapan. But for today, I just felt we had, we had, to, we had to have this decent, basic, mini lecture on BRICS. Alright? And sana naman tayo mga Pilipino, may pakirin tayo ng, may mga, sa mga nangyari internationally because we want to have, you know, a voice. We want to be part of the conversation. Alright? God bless and thank you very much and have a good day.